morning. Good to see you here today. Take your Bibles, turn again to John chapter 11. And we're going to begin this morning looking in verse number 17. Verse number 17, John chapter number 11. You remember that we have been looking at the family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In the first half of John chapter 11, we're introduced to this family living in Bethany. You may recall that when Lazarus became ill, his sisters sent an urgent message to Jesus. Yet the reality of the situation was probably that before the message even reached Jesus, Lazarus was already dead. Yet when he did receive the news, he did not drop everything and hurry to Bethany to be with his friends. He waited. He delayed his coming, and as we noted last time, it is that delay that puzzles us. It's when God does not respond in the way that we've been taught to expect him to that we are troubled. It is then that we begin to think that God really doesn't care about us. When you're being overwhelmed by the events of your life, it's very difficult to continue to believe in the midst of God's silences and God's delays that they are still evidence of his love. Jesus did not stop loving Martha and Mary and Lazarus because he did not come immediately. It was just that his plan required a different response. As we look at these verses today, I want us to look at what they reveal about Jesus. First of all, they reveal that we have a Savior who can handle our honesty. Verse number 17 says, When Jesus came, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So the first member of the family that Jesus comes into contact with is Martha. And Martha's first words to Jesus in those moments of grief in verse 21 are, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Or to put it more plainly, where were you, Lord? Have you ever felt that way? The circumstances of your life are overwhelming and you are ready to ask, well, where were you, Lord, when all that was going on? I think Kent Hughes has it right when he says it's not sinful to tell God how you feel. That may sound like heresy in the light of some of the things that you have been taught, but I want to qualify by saying that we should always be reverent toward God. 
He is God. We are his creatures, and we must ever bow before him. But it does not mean that we are not allowed to express to him how we feel. Some of us have feelings that ought to be shared with God. The feelings are not necessarily right, but they are the feelings that need to be brought honestly before God. But if we do not, for fear of losing something, God is more patient and accepting than we realize. God wants us to pour our hearts out to him. And that is what he allowed Martha to do. I want you to notice that Jesus invites us to bring our burdens to him. We don't have to be afraid to be honest with God. By the way, he's already God. He already knows what you're thinking, right? He already knows what you feel. He can handle our honesty. In fact, Jesus invites us to pour our hearts out to him. The Apostle Peter records in Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. And that includes all your burdens and your grief and your questions and your frustrations. I want you to note in our text that God does not reprove nor rebuke Martha for her honesty. He will communicate truth into our troubles once you've communicated your heart to God. God already knows your heart, but he can't correct the problems in your heart and life until you admit those feelings. Secondly, I want you to know that Jesus Jesus instructs us about eternity. Jesus answers her in verse 23 by saying, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds to Jesus in verse 24 with the fact that she does indeed believe in a future day of resurrection. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Martha agrees, but she misunderstands what Jesus is saying. Jesus responds to Martha's comment by saying, your brother will live again. Martha's response is typical even today. It sounds like the correct Sunday school answer, the correct theological, orthodox response, but it is disconnected from life. As Martha understands these words, they're similar to someone in our day saying to someone who is grieving, well, your loved one is in a better place. It's true, but it isn't always helpful, and it isn't always a comfort. Sometimes the best thing that we can do when someone is grieving, when we're trying to comfort someone, is to listen. Alastair Begg, the Scottish preacher, writes, We need to remember this when talking with friends who are in the eyes of a storm. At that moment, our presence is more important than our pronouncements, and our silences are more eloquent than our words. If you'll go in your mind this morning and remember back to a time when you were deeply distressed. At that time, you may not remember too much 
of what was said to you. But you do remember those who came and sat with you, those who spent time with you. You remember their presence even if you do not remember their words. We have a Savior who can handle our honesty. Secondly, we have a Savior who deserves our commitment. Jesus now makes one of the most famous and most significant of the I am statements recorded in John's gospel. In verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is not just saying that he can provide resurrection and life, though certainly that is implied. Jesus says he is the resurrection and life. And furthermore, he makes it clear that this eternal life is possible not just after death in the distant future, but through him in the present. In the Greek language, there are two words that are translated as life. Bios is a word that we get biology from. It is a word that describes biological life. And then there is the word zoe. Zoe is the word we get zoology from. It it refers to life in all its fullness. And it is the word zoe that Jesus uses here when he said, I am the resurrection and the life with all its fullness. In the presence of Jesus, death takes on a completely new meaning. As the Apostle Paul says later in the New Testament in John chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death has lost its sting, and the grave has lost its victory. Heaven is not just an extension of our biological life, but rather a transformation of that existence into something completely new and even more wonderful than we can imagine. Jesus did not mean, of course, that believers would not die physically. He is not saying that the believer will never pass through the gateway we call death, but rather the life he gives continues through death. Death cannot blot out the life that Jesus gives. This eternal life that Jesus gives begins the instant we believe in Jesus and is not interrupted by physical death. Rather, death ushers us into the presence of the Lord, where we await the resurrection of our bodies when Christ returns. When the Bible speaks of the dead as sleeping, it is not the body that sleeps, or rather it is the body that sleeps, not the soul. The real you is very much alive. Then Jesus asked Martha, the most important question that anyone will ever face. His teaching about the resurrection is not just an interesting piece of information to add to our collection about biblical knowledge. It is a saving truth 
to be received in faith and acted upon. And so Jesus asked Martha in verse 26, do you believe this? He's not asking, do you believe in God? He's not saying, do you believe in an afterlife? But rather, do you believe in me? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? It's common to, among Christians to always remember Martha from that story in Luke chapter 10. Remembering her as the lady who was distracted with much serving while her sister Mary sat at Jesus' feet absorbing his teachings. But it is apparent that Martha could and did learn. It is worth bearing in mind that her reaction, her declaration is the clearest declaration of faith in Jesus that has been recorded up until this time. I want you to note that we do not have to understand what God is doing to trust him. So what does Martha say? To her credit, Martha responds by saying in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. She said literally, I have believed, perfect tense. It indicates a firm and continuing commitment. The perfect tense is normally used of something that happened in the past in such a way that it continues into the present and the future. We should note also that her I is emphatic. Whatever the case may be with other people, whatever they decide, whatever they believe, Martha says, She has put her trust in Jesus. I believe or I have believed indicates a faith given and permanently remaining. She says, yes, Lord, I have believed and I've not stopped believing. I've always trusted in you. And despite all that's gone on in my life in these last four days with the death of my brother, I've never stopped trusting in you. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. She doesn't say, I believe in you because you did this or you did that. She says, I believe in you because you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. Please note also that displaying grief is not a lack of faith. Now, Martha quickly goes back into action by running to the house to tell her sister that Jesus has arrived. Mary then goes out to meet Jesus, but all of her mourners follow along after her, thinking that she's going to the grave in order to to mourn her brother. When she arrives where Jesus is, she says the same thing that Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Mary begins to weep, Martha begins to weep, and all those who came with them began to weep. And Jesus is deeply moved by their grief, and John uses two words to describe the Lord's deep emotional response. It says that Jesus groaned in the spirit and that he was troubled. 
And then we read the shortest verse in the Bible. Verse 35, Jesus wept. All of this given to let us know that our Lord is greatly affected by the sorrow of those that, we, that he loves. He doesn't just wipe away a little tear or two, but he visibly trembles in raw emotion. I think it makes an important point about tears and about grief. It is not wrong to weep over the death of our loved ones. We're not weeping for them. We're weeping for ourselves and our loss. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, and this has been misquoted so many times, that Christians should not sorrow. And some people never get any further than that. They say, you know, if if you're a real Christian, you don't sorrow. That's not what the verse says. It says we are not to sorrow as those who have no hope. We have hope. Jesus knew that he was about to raise Lazarus back to life, and yet he still wept because he felt for those who were mourning. Third, we have a Savior who is moved by our sorrows. Jesus wept, and then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, also kept this man from dying? I think we need to understand that we have a Savior who meets us where we are emotionally. Jesus gives a wonderful example of how to minister to people who are grieving. Jesus understands that people are different and that we cannot respond to everyone who is grieving in the same way. Martha was apparently the type of person who handles difficulties by finding something to do. She needed to be busy, even if it's serving those who've come to mourn with her. She needed to find something to do. Mary, on the other hand, was the kind of person that handled her problems by reflection. She handled her grief by remembering and mourning. Verse 35, as I said, is the shortest in the Bible, but it is filled with meaning. The tears of Jesus speak of his tender, compassionate heart. Even his enemies have to remark in verse 36, see how he loved him. Notice with the active and thoughtful Martha, he responded by reasoning with her. And with the tender-hearted Mary, he wept. The Lord always responds to us in accordance with our makeup. The fact that Jesus wept reminds us that although God permits suffering to come into our lives, he also feels that suffering with us. This episode reveals the Lord is deeply moved by the pains and sorrows of his children. And then fourth and finally, we have a Savior who has demonstrated his power. Verse 38 says, Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. 
And Jesus said to her, I, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. There are some things that we can do for ourselves and Jesus is not going to do for us. Jesus could have rolled away the stone for them by the very act of his divine will. But he asked those present to roll away the stone. That was something they could do. To Martha, it seemed so unreasonable. The removal of the stone, as far as she was concerned, was unnecessary and distressing. Perhaps in her mind, the only possible purpose that she can imagine was that Jesus wanted to have a one last look at his friend. So Martha tries to reason with Jesus. Lord, it's been four days. He's dead. And the decay of his body has no doubt already set in. How could what he desired be of any consolation? It was Martha's belief that Lazarus was now dead beyond all recall. But the question that begs to be answered is, would it have been easier to raise Lazarus if he'd only been dead a single day or a few hours? No, dead's dead. And only God can bring the dead back to life. Now, we could probably pause for a moment to point out that resurrections are rare, but the raising of Lazarus was not the first. There are a couple of examples in the Old Testament. Elijah raised one. Elisha, who asked for a double blessing of uh, Elijah's power, raised two. Jesus has already raised uh, the widow of Nain's son, recorded in Luke chapter 7, which was followed by the raising of Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8. But it doesn't happen very often. It's rare. Now in verse 41, we read, And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound head and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Jesus prayed out loud in order to focus the faith of those who were around him, that they might believe. Jesus simply ordered the stone to be removed, and then with a loud voice, he commanded Lazarus to come forth. It's not a whisper. It's not even a firm request. It's a shout of raw authority. St. Augustine in the 4th century wrote, it was good that Jesus called Lazarus by name or else the whole cemetery would have come out of the grave. Since the typical tomb in that day held eight occupants, he would have had to have been specific. 
Lazarus, come forth. In my mind's eye at the tomb, this is a fascinating story. The crowd, no doubt, waited in breathless anticipation. They were listening so intently, they probably could hear their own hearts beating. What's going to happen? And then slowly, out of the tomb, moving with great difficulty because he was wrapped head to foot in grave clothes, came Lazarus out of the tomb alive. Then Lazarus stands before Jesus, wrapped from head to foot in the grave wrappings, and Jesus, no doubt, talking to Lazarus and reassuring him what, you know, don't you want to know what he said to Lazarus? Lazarus wants to know what's going on, I'm sure. Now, what's the crowd to do? Jesus says, unwrap him and let him go. There's just one little stickler here. A Jew is not supposed to talk, supposed to touch the dead. He was dead, but he's not dead anymore. So who's going to help Lazarus? Well, it's not hard to imagine that Jesus is the first to embrace his friend, the recently dead Lazarus. And again, the people are asked to become a part of the miracle, to do what they could do. When Jesus tells them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Every miracle that Jesus ever performed resulted in a choice. People could believe or people could reject the truth and walk away. And we certainly see it in this case as well. Verse 45 says, and then many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him but some of them went away to the pharisees and told them the things that jesus did the mourners who had come to comfort mary and martha are stunned by the miracle that they had witnessed and according to john's report many believed but there were others who rushed to the authorities to report to the pharisees what Jesus has done. So what will it be for us today? Are you going to take the challenge, the faith, seriously? Will you or have you put your trust in Christ? Are you going to accept him and believe him? Or are you going to reject him and turn away? The questions are simple. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God who came from heaven to live on this earth? Do you believe that when he died on the cross, he died in your place, bearing your punishment and paying for your sins? Do you believe that he literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead? Never to die again. Do you believe that Jesus is truly the resurrection and the life and that he is able to grant eternal life to those who trust him? Let me close with these words from one of the great commentators, Leon Morris. He says, when anyone sees that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, 
He is challenged to do something about it. He cannot regard this as a curious piece of information to be put away safely in some file of comparative religions. He may take it seriously, in which case he responds with wholehearted faith. He puts his trust and faith in Christ and receives the gift of life that means he will not die in any meaningful sense. Or he may reject it and withhold faith, in which case he numbers himself among those who do not know eternal life and never will. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning for your guidance and direction of your Holy Spirit here among us. Every one of us makes a decision about what we're going to do about the knowledge that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If there's one here today that doesn't know you in a personal, intimate way, I pray that they might take the challenge this morning to place their faith in you repent of their sins, recognize that they are a sinner and they cannot save themselves, but also recognize that Jesus has already done everything necessary for them to be cleansed of their sin by accepting what he did on the cross for them. I pray if there's one in such a condition that you would lead them today. I pray also for those who know for sure they are saved. Help us to live in the light of that faith, to live as those whose lives have been changed by coming into contact with our living Lord and Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.